Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you've decided to join us in worship this morning. As the Hub City Church, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the Word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, or if you're interested in joining our serve teams, community groups, or men's and women's ministries, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97000, and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. Be sure to join us tonight at 4 for our annual Fall Fest. We don't want you to miss out on fun, fellowship, and fall stuff. Bring your best chili for the chili cook-off to earn high fives and bragging rights. We'll also take this opportunity to send off the McIntyre family and express our love and appreciation for them. God has been so faithful in continuing to grow our church body. To help accommodate those looking for seating, it would be super helpful to keep end seats open so our ushers are able to easily find seats for those coming into the service. Kids are always welcome in service and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. be light. Friends, let there be light. All right. Very good. Welcome once again uh, to this gathering of the Hub City Church. We are so grateful that you are here uh, with us to worship Jesus this morning. I just have a a couple of announcements really quick, and then we'll get to God's Word. Uh, The first thing is the Fall Fest is today at 4 p.m. So um, yeah, chili cook-off. Uh, I've been hearing a lot of loving smack talk from some of the brothers and the sisters around here, but tonight we will see for sure who the true chili king or queen is. So uh, we'll also have some uh, fun, uh, you know, yard games, cornhole, uh, pumpkin bowling, uh, inflatable axe throwing because real axe throwing seemed too dangerous for children, and you know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and say this too. Um, man, the Lord really delivered on the fall weather today, didn't He? So awesome, man! Praise God for that. So it's gonna be great. I uh, hope you'll join us as we fellowship and have some fun uh, together this evening. Um, the second thing is that. Um, we haven't said this in a while. I haven't said it in a while. Uh, we do have an app. I don't know if you know that. It's the Church Center app. If you'd like to uh, follow along with the notes for the sermon, you can do that there. You can also give. You can see current announcements, engage with different teams that you're on, community groups, and so forth. So if you don't have that, uh, check that out. It's a good, good resource there we use for our church, so the Church Center app. All right. Well, this morning we are embarking into a a new teaching series, as you saw, (laughs) uh, that we will be in uh, up through uh, the holidays, and it's called That's Messed Up. Uh, The focus is on sin and redemption in the Old Testament book 
of Genesis. And before we get into the first um, text that we'll be looking at together, some may wonder why a series, why a series focused exclusively on the brokenness of sin. I've had people ask me that before. So here's my answer in two parts. Number one, first of all, the most obvious, I think, uh, is this. I don't know if you know, the Bible is the story of how God rescues and redeems His people from their sin. (laughs) So, yeah, Genesis specifically, but the Old Testament in general helps us to see uh, right up front that the Bible is not a book full of examples of perfect people behaving perfectly. Uh, Rather, it is the history of consistently broken and messed up people who desperately need a Savior. Okay, And if we're honest, we should realize that we are no different. Uh, Romans 3.23 says this very plainly. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, if we don't understand and accept that fact, then we will totally misinterpret the Bible and wind up living a sub-Christian moralistic life where depending on, you know, like how type A we are, um, we'll either, uh, it'll lead, either lead to pride, you know, for those who think they're, they're doing pretty well at life, um, or despair for those who are not quite as good at white-knuckling uh, what they determine to be good behavior, okay? Neither of those is what God wants for us. And so with that, here's the second uh, reason for a series focused on sin. The deeper and more comprehensive our understanding of our own sin, the greater our humility and capacity to love Christ and cherish the gospel. Okay, um, In Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells an illustrative story to a Pharisee about two debtors, one who owed about, let's say, $100,000 in debt, and one who owed like $200 in debt. Okay? Uh, Jesus says the moneylender forgave both. And then he asked the Pharisee, which debtor would love the moneylender more? The Pharisee rightly said, the one, well, the one with the larger debt, right? And so Jesus affirms that and gives this principle. He says, he who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much loves much. And his point was not that some people only have a little bit of sin to be forgiven and some have a lot of sin, His point was about our perception, our perception of how much we need to be forgiven of, right? Scripture makes it clear, if we've lived very long, then we have a lot of sin that needs to be forgiven. As the great hymn we sang this morning puts it, apart from the grace of God, we all stand beneath a debt we can never afford. 
And so, why preach a series on sin? Because the better we understand the weight and the severity of our sin, the greater our capacity to love Jesus and the good news of the gospel. So with that, let's go ahead and get into our text, which um, is one that many of us are familiar with and that, in a sense, really kind of undergirds and helps explain the rest. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, the fall. Uh, I'm just going to read the whole thing to you, and then we will pray And then we'll actually get into talking about it, okay? So Genesis chapter 3, picking up in verse 1 here, starting in the beginning. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and the Lord God, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was... Afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, said to the woman what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning so thankful for your grace. Lord, we 
praise you for the amazing news of the gospel of your son Jesus. And I pray that we would never grow tired of hearing it. That we would grow all the more humble and reliant on it as the years go by. Lord, before we begin, I just want to lift up God, the, the nation of Israel to you today as we are grieved by the news of war that has just broken out in their midst yesterday. Would you strengthen those who are there and undoubtedly fearful for their lives? Comfort them, we pray, with your presence, Father, and justly bring this great tragedy to a swift end. But now, God, as we turn to your word and a relatively well-known passage, would you open our eyes to see the important truths that are there, truths about our sinfulness, our tendency to hide and our guilt and shame, but also the truth of your kindness to all sinners, to call sinners to yourself, not for the judgment they deserve, but for mercy and a covering that's actually effective, not to hide us, but to save us. Would you help me, Holy Spirit, to deliver this message in a way that brings glory to you and hope to those who hear. Help me to say all that I should say and nothing I should not. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, this is a critical passage of Scripture, okay? And so um, if you've been here for any length of time, uh, then you know I, I do reference it a good bit for sake of explaining the nature of sin. But today we're going to do something just a little different. Uh, we're going to identify and kind of dissect the specific way that Adam and Eve sinned after their initial sin of eating the fruit. And then we'll, we'll kind of use that as a, as a lens for examining ourselves, and we'll close with how Jesus is indeed the answer to this particular facet of sin. And that's, that, that's going to be the simple frame with which we move through each different text uh, in, in each of these weeks in this series. I, I like what uh, pastor and author Kent Hughes says of this uh, messed up situation. He says, Adam and Eve, as our parents, were genetically, historically, and theologically every man and every woman. They are paradigmatic of all of us, not only in their original sin, but because of the way they attempted to deal with their sin. It's the pattern with which we attempt to deal with it today. And the way that God dealt with Adam and Eve is the way that he continues to deal with us. He's saying, as we look at the sinful behavior of Adam and Eve, we should realize that we are Adam and Eve, right? They are us in the sense that they acted, though they didn't act perfectly, they acted as perfect representatives for all of humanity when they chose to disobey God and then subsequently found themselves hiding from God, as it were. Okay? So to put the pattern here into a principle, what we see first is that once sin entered the world, the normative human disposition toward God became shame and fear. Shame and fear. And this is the great irony, you see, of the sinful human heart. On, on one hand, we read in 
Jeremiah 17, 9, that our hearts are desperately sick. In Psalm 14, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so just like Adam and Eve, instead of living our lives in glad, glad obedience to, to God as we were created to, okay, every single one of our hearts deceive us into posturing as though we are our own gods. Okay, This is what sin really is at the root level. Sin is a disbelief that God has our best interest in mind. Okay? That's what sin is. Sin is a disbelief that God has our best interest in mind. And, and then out of that disbelief, we pridefully determine to take our lives in our own hands and try to find happiness and fulfillment apart from Him. This is, we just saw this. This is what Adam and Eve did, and it's what we do. Okay. And while a survey of history or the news will reveal that the heart of sin leads some people to a place of committing great evil and atrocity, theft, murder, a host of other criminally deviant acts, for most of us, we just wind up taking good things, work, money, sex, right? Things that were meant to be a blessing and misusing them and abusing them in self-centered ways that dishonor God and that disregard other people for the sake of our self-gratification. Okay. But, but here's the irony of the human heart. It urges us to do this. It urges us to do this. It's it's desperately sick, and so in its hard and impenitent state, it, it counsels us to pretend like we're the captains of our own destiny, and like we're the highest authority in our own lives. But when we do, here's the irony, when we do, we realize that while the heart is sick, it still has presets. It still has presets set by God that we cannot override. And so when we sin, those presets kick in in order to cause us to feel shame. Shame. You know what shame is, right? The dictionary defines shame as the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of having done something dishonorable or improper or ridiculous. Shame feels wrong, feels Dirty. It's often accompanied by regret. And here's why. It's because deep down, we really know better. We really know better. Even for those who may pretend not to. The Lord has wired within the heart of every man and every woman a conscience that quietly but incessantly alerts us to our wrongdoing. Yeah. My wife just got a new car, 
And the newer the car, the more safety features it has, which just means the more that it will tell you what a bad driver you actually are. <laughs> you get too close to the line, you know, the steering wheel vibrates. <laughs> you take off your seatbelt, just momentarily grab your, your wallet, you know, ding, 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 you know, like, okay, you know, the, the human conscience is the same way. It's the same way. Telling a white lie, you know, <laughs> looking at something you shouldn't be, ding, 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 ding. Amy's car, if it thinks you've made too many infractions in a particular amount of time, it'll pop up a nice little message there in, in the dash. It's like, you know, maybe you should take a break from driving <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> like a little coffee cup. <laughs> Stop at Starbucks. You're not, not doing good, you know. This is like shame, right? This is like shame. Shame is like, you're not doing so hot. You're not doing so hot. You should really reevaluate how you're living your life. Anybody else get that error message that pops up? In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul talks about our, our inner awareness of our, our sin this way. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they know God, he says, they just don't honor him as God. He's saying what Adam and Eve knew from firsthand experience, we all still know from rational inference. Right? There is a God. We're not him. He has standards for how we are to live. And we frequently do not meet them. Right? And so not only do we feel shame, but we also experience fear. Because we all know that sin, sin is not merely going against the grain of impersonal cultural expectations, right? Sin is transgressing the commands of our sovereign creator, bit more serious by a bit, I mean a lot, right? And so here's the reality. While a default disposition of shame and fear was not God's desire for his image bearers before the fall, after the fall, feeling ashamed and fearful are completely appropriate for people who are guilty of sinfully rebelling against the one who has given them everything. That's us. From Adam and Eve all the way to every one of us here today. And so this leads to the second thing that we see in our text. An accurate sense of guilt without an understanding of grace inclines us to hide by covering ourselves, avoiding God, and blaming others. 
In verse 7, we read that while Adam and Eve had always been naked, but never felt like they had any reason to be self-conscious of that fact, now with their newly acquired uh, senses of guilt and fear and shame, they immediately, you look at verse 7, look back to verse 7, they immediately begin to create ways to cover themselves up. I think if we're honest, we'll admit that just like our first parents, we find our own metaphorical fig leaves to mask our guilt and pretend like everything is okay. Right? Two of the main fig leaves that modern folks like us tend to use to cover ourselves are materialism and moralism. Materialism and moralism. Let's talk briefly about each of those. First, materialism. The truth is, most of us in this room have, maybe all of us in this room, have some degree of materialistic tendency. We are, without a doubt, the, some of the richest and most comfortable people in human history. Okay? Um, we, we rarely, if ever, experience what it feels like to be in desperate need for anything, because we have so much, right? Like, guys, we live in a society that is so rich that we put sweaters on our dogs and, like, blow up cartoon characters on our manicured lawns at every conceivable holiday. It's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. Sorry if you've got some on your lawn right now. And so... The truth is, we tend to feel safe and like everything is okay based on the number of zeros at the end of our bank account balance. And if we ever feel like our lives are just going too slow for our liking, we just, just go to Amazon for some new trinkets to spice things up. Or we plan a trip speed up the pace and the excitement and remind ourselves we're, we're good. We're good. Nothing's wrong. Right? No need to think deeply about the state of my soul. Ugh. Right? It's not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's more like eat, drink, and be merry so we can mentally and emotionally evade the fact that one day we are all going to die and stand before our maker. So that's the first and very relevant way that we cover ourselves with stuff, right? With stuff. There are a lot of subcategories and niche kind of manifestations to this category, okay? You know, like expensive and time-consuming hobbies, constant search for entertainment, obsession with sports, professional, or our kids. Our kids' sports? <laughs> Side note, sorry, not sorry. That's a weird fig leaf, people. That's a weird fig leaf. Vicariously living through your kids' athletic abilities, dumping a small fortune into gear 
and then wrapping your entire life around it so that how you feel about yourself rises and falls on their performance. I could go on here because there's a whole sermon to be preached about sinfully using our kids to find our own sense of worth. Maybe I'll do that later in this series. The, the pressure of that, parents, the pressure of that is crushing to our poor children. They're like, what's this had to do with materialism? Our kids aren't materials. No, but you treat them that way, don't you, sometimes? It's crushing to our poor children whose role is to be loved and taught by their parents, not to be an idol for their parents' need for validation. I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm just trying to show you how intricate and kind of weird our attempts get to cover ourselves and pretend all is well when we are actually racked with guilt over our sin. When we use things that we don't really need to numb our hearts to our greatest and most desperate need, that's materialism. That's materialism. It's like a cancer for Americans. But the other big one is moralism. You know, some of us, we scoff at the materialists because <laughs> we found a far more pious way to cover our guilt with good deeds. <laughs> good deeds, right? Community service, church attendance, charitable donations, whatever we can do to try to tip the scales in the direction of us really, truly being good people. And, and please, don't, don't hear me saying that these are bad things in and of themselves. They're not. These are not bad things. You see, the problem with the, with the, sorry, with the moralist is not the benevolence of his actions, but the selfishness of his motivations. The problem with the moralist is not the benevolence of his actions, but the selfishness of his heart motivations. This is why the prophet Isaiah says of some that their righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. Because they're not doing good deeds ultimately for the good of others. But they're doing them subconsciously to contrive a fig leaf of moral superiority that negates their need for a savior. Right. This is a tricky one, isn't it? especially for us church folk. Because there's no way for anyone to know whether what you're doing is rightly motivated or actually motivated by an uneasy conscience and a frenetic attempt to always be doing something good in order to exalt and cover yourself. Right? The only way for you to tell is something that people who are covering themselves really hate the sound of. Self-examination. Self-examination. Asking questions like, why are you really doing all this religious stuff that you're doing? Does that question bother you a little bit? Make you feel defensive? You might struggle with using moralism to cover over your sense of guilt, right? Right? It's pretty wild, but 
some people actually get so wrapped up in doing visibly good things just to look like they're good with God. Just to look like they're good with God. As opposed to actually just going to his word and seeing how they really could be good with him. But that's what sin-induced fear does. Makes us do some crazy and honestly irrational things. But moving on, not only do Adam and Eve try to cover themselves and their guilt, but they also try to avoid God. It says when they hear him walking through the garden, they, they dive behind some trees real quick, right? As though that would have been an effective method. Um, my my six-year-old son, Abel, um, a, a few years back, used to have trouble getting to sleep uh, at, at night. And so we'd you know, put all the kids to bed, and, and after about five or ten minutes, we'd be sitting on the couch, and he'd come shuffling out, you know, with his eyes, you know, like this, like kind of squinted shut and his hands over his eyes like this, you know, like looking through his fingers, you know. I guess the little kid rationale, he doesn't do that anymore, but I guess the little kid rationale is that if they can't see us, somehow we can't see them. (laughs) It's pretty silly stuff, right? Yeah, but that's what it's like when we try to avoid and hide from God. The best we can do is stop ourselves from seeing him. But there's no pulling the wool over his eyes. He's God. He's God. In Psalm 139, the psalmist confesses to God, You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts From afar, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Hebrews 4, the author of Hebrews, says it even more plainly. It says, and no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of God of him to whom we must give account. What Old Testament passage do you think he had in mind there? <laughs> yeah. Now, I think, we all, I think we all intuitively know this, but that doesn't stop us from trying, does it? It doesn't stop us from trying. Some people try to avoid God by uh, avoiding church, which, okay, you know, somewhat logical, I guess, you know. Um, except for the fact that God is not constrained to the confines of a building. He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere, all the time, right? And yet getting some people to set foot inside of a church building is like pulling teeth, right? It's not because of the building. It's because in their limited understanding, they perceive God to be present there. And that's what they'd like to steer clear of, if possible. They make uneasy jokes about you know, catching on fire if they come or, or whatever. You've heard that. But some people are a little more nuanced than that, and so they'll, they'll go to church. But it's, um, it's deep relationship with Christians that they'll avoid, right? They've got their fig leaves on, and they're not going to take the risk of anyone seeing what's really going on inside. 
And so they smile and they shake hands. They do all the right Sunday morning things. But they're really hiding in plain sight. They're hiding in plain sight. But still some others. These are like the super stealth hiders, right? They go to church and they get to know people and they find a community group and they serve and they they come to different functions. And what they won't do, though, is be honest. Just be honest about the guilt and the shame that they're carrying around because of the sin struggles that they have successfully kept concealed, perhaps for years, right? I think if they just stay hidden, they'll be all right. But the truth is, it's not the presence of people they're afraid of. It's God's presence. It's God's presence. But finally, not only do guilty people like Adam and Eve cover themselves and avoid God, they tend to blame others for their own sin. This was like Adam and Eve's last line of defense, right? The fig leaves didn't work. They realized they couldn't actually hide. And so when God started asking them questions, right, they they blamed one another and the serpent and even God himself when no one forced them to eat the fruit. They did it of their own volition. Who is there that can say they haven't done this? Who is there among us that can say they haven't done this? When faced with the hard reality of their wrongs, attempting to explain it away as someone else's, anyone else's fault, but their own. If you have multiple kids, then you know this is what guilty people do, don't you? They're caught doing something wrong. They all start pointing fingers at each other. But it's not just kids who do this. You know, modern psychology has really made a fortune on this sinful human bent by telling people that, you know, all their problems really just stem from the shortcomings of their parents, right? And how many marriages have come to an end because of irreconcilable differences? Translation, the couples weren't willing to concede that maybe there were faults and flaws on both sides, of the relationship that needed to be admitted and worked through, right? Anyway, this is hard, I know. I hope that if you didn't before, you're starting to see that the apple has not fallen far from the tree, so to speak, and we're actually not so different from Adam and Eve at all. Our sense of guilt and shame for the sin that we know we've committed often inclines us to hide by covering ourselves, avoiding God, and blaming others. And so if you're here today, let's make a turn, okay? You're here today and you realize this is true. This is true. Even though you're in church right now, you know, really before the eyes of of God, you know you're you're like little Abel there and you pull up just hiding your eyes, you know? Let me extend to you some great comfort this morning. Friend, not only can you not hide from God, you don't have to. You don't have to. Because God lovingly seeks and finds sinners so that he can tell them the truth 
pardoned them in his mercy and promised them restoration by his grace. This is good news. If you're here and you know that you're hiding from God, I want you to see how God deals with Adam and Eve. He knew they had sinned, right? He knew they'd sinned. But how does he approach them? Not on wings of fire, outraged, hurling accusations, tearing up trees so he could smite them. Did you see that in there? I didn't see that in there. He comes walking. He comes walking in the cool of the day. And you can hear his fatherly tone. Adam, Eve, where are you? And after they sheepishly emerge from the trees of the garden and God inquires about what happened, he calmly begins to help them understand the consequences of their actions. Guys, the Lord has not given us his word and his commands and explanations of our sin because he hates us. He has done it because he loves us. He loves us. And he wants us to know the truth. You see, without the truth, we would remain enslaved and ultimately perish in our sin. But God desires for us to be free from our sin and to have life. Right? And so he breaks the bad news to us and he fills us in on the damage that our sin has done so that we will be humbled and repent, turning away from it and looking to him for help. I want you to see, as we're about to close here, I want you to see two incredibly beautiful things in the remainder of the passage. First of all, before God even gets to Adam and Eve's consequences, he addresses the serpent first, who was the one who introduced sin into God's world. And on the front end, God makes a gospel promise about the restoration of the mess that is human sin. He tells the serpent that one day there will be an offspring of Adam and Eve who will crush him and deal with sin finally and fully. That offspring, guys, has now come. He has come. His name is Jesus, the Son of God in human flesh. And that promise of gracious restoration that God made in Genesis 3 can now be yours by simply placing your faith in him. <laughs> he lived a sinless life on your behalf so that he could take your sin-stained record and exchange it for his own blameless one. And then all the punishment for the sin that you've ever committed and will ever commit, the wrath of God that you deserve, God put that all on Jesus. He put it all on Jesus and nailed it to the cross. I was just in prayer with the other elders this morning, and our brother Tristan prayed, Lord, thank you that when you could have smashed us, you smashed Jesus in our place. His broken body and his shed blood becoming our atonement. This is your opportunity to have 
total forgiveness and a clean conscience that no longer has need to feel ashamed or fearful in God's presence. And finally, after three days, he rose from the grave, defeating death so that you could too, in him, by faith. And you see, here's the second thing in verse 21 of Genesis 3. It says that God made for Adam and Eve. I love this verse here. It says that God made for Adam and Eve garments of skins. He made them garments of skins. You see, this was the very first blood sacrifice that took place in Scripture, showing that sinners don't need to cover themselves up in fear of God. They need to come to God for the pardoning mercy that can be received in the covering of Christ, our perfect and final sacrifice. So, let me read you some scripture. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in, in whom, whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And he forgave the iniquity of my sin. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And Hebrews 4, which says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's Jesus. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So fellow sinner, fellow struggler, won't you come out of hiding today? Won't you? Won't you come out of hiding today? The Holy Spirit beckons you this morning. I'm certain of it. Whether you've been hiding all your life or you're a believer, and after being saved, you went back into hiding over the shame and the guilt of your continued struggle with sin, there is more, let me tell you, there is more than enough mercy and grace for you in Christ Jesus today. There's more than enough. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy of your redemption, Jesus went to the cross, despising your shame and demolishing your shame. 
securing the defeat of your shame. And so there's no longer any need for fear. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So come out of hiding today, won't you? Come out of hiding and place your faith in Jesus. Exchange those tattered fig leaves for the covering of his perfect righteousness. In him, you'll find the safety and the security that hiding could never provide you. And in this family, you'll be surrounded by brothers and sisters who've all done the same. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Yes, your, your sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you. We praise you for the glory and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I confess as a sinner myself, my disposition was to hide from you, was to cover myself, was to blame others for my sin. But God, praise be to you alone that you delivered me with this message of grace and mercy that is in Christ alone. Thank you, Father, for covering me with the broken body and the shed blood of your Son, nailing all of my sins, past, present, and future, to the cross. Lord, I pray if there's any man or woman in here today that knows that they're in hiding, that you might graciously pull back the trees and show them that not only are they not able to hide, but that they don't need to. Thank you, Father, that you save sinners. It's a trustworthy statement, God, of whom I am the foremost. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.